Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash CanadianHistoryX. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. Before I start, I want to say thank you for a few donations that came in. I want to say thank you to Jeff Hershey, who donated and is sponsoring this episode, as well as another one with From John to Justin. And yesterday was my birthday, and I put a call out for birthday donations, and I received a few, and I might get more through the day, but I'm recording this in the morning, so we'll see. But I appreciate every donation, and thank you to Rachel Enns, Elaine Robitaille, and Gary Pittman, all of whom donated. And Gary Pittman is going to be sponsoring pretty much every episode of the podcast for the next month or so. Thank you, Gary. I truly appreciate it, and thank you, Rachel, Elaine, and Jeff as well. It has become not only an engineering marvel, but an image of Canada and a vital link between two provinces. It is the Confederation Bridge, but the story of it dates back far longer than the bridge itself, all the way to the 19th century. Today I'm looking at the bridge that links New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. This bridge, which spans 12.9 kilometers over the Northumberland Strait, is the longest bridge in the world over ice-covered waters. 
For most of the existence of Canadian settlement on Prince Edward Island, there has been a desire to link with the rest of Canada. The linking of New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island was something both provinces and the federal government wanted. To that end, the federal government hired surveyors and engineers in the summer of 1887 to look at creating a subway line running from Carleton Point to New Brunswick. The idea did not disappear. In 1893, the Ottawa Daily Citizen would report, quote, The proposed tunnel, according to its present location, will traverse these between Cape Tormentine and New Brunswick and Carleton Point and Prince Edward Island, and the description of the strata which will probably be encountered will be given as shown by the series of boreholes put down during the past season along the line of the route, end quote. The idea was put forward by George Howland, a major political figure on Prince Edward Island. He would raise it as a member of the provincial legislature, then as a senator, and even as a delegate to the British Parliament. When he died in 1901, the idea began to fade. Since the technology of the day and the cost was too much to create the subway link between the two provinces, it now fell to the ferries to shoulder the load. By the time the 20th century came along, the winter ice boat service was proving to be highly unreliable. To resolve this, the SS Prince Edward Island, a custom-built railcar ferry, was built in England and would come to Prince Edward Island to operate year-round. The SS Prince Edward Island arrived in 1915, but the new port of Carleton Point had not been constructed yet. As a result, the ferry operated service out of Charlottetown and Georgetown until the port at Carleton Point was finished. Finally, in early 1917, the port was finished and the SS Prince Edward Island began service from its new location. The ferry proved to be incredibly popular, and in its first year alone, it made 506 crossings to New Brunswick. In 1931, the SS Charlottetown was built, and it came into service to help the SS Prince Edward Island handle the growing traffic. At the time of its construction, the SS Charlottetown was called the largest ice-breaking car ferry in the world, capable of holding 16 railway cars and 25 vehicles. Costing $2 million to build, it measured in at 308 feet long. At the same time, the community of Borden was growing thanks to the workers who were working in the ferry and the rail yard. Ten years after the Charlottetown launched, on June 18, 1941, it would suddenly sink beneath the waves. In heavy fog near Port Moton, it struck something and over the course of two days, it would sink between New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. Thankfully, there were no passengers on board and the 30 crew were able to get to safety, with Captain John Reed leaving the ship last. He had been the captain of the ship since it launched in 1931. The Windsor Star reported, quote, When word of the accident was received, arrangements were made with the Maritime Foundation Company at Halifax to dispatch two wrecking tugs to the scene, but due to the fog, the tugs were unable to make contact. A number of small motor vessels reached Charlottetown and endeavored to beach her, but were unable to do so. End quote. Over the next two decades, the amount of automobile traffic would greatly increase on Prince Edward Island, especially with the completion of the Trans-Canada Highway in the 1960s. The MV Confederation would be built in 1962, and then the MV Lucy Maud Montgomery, and the MV John Hamilton Gray. Proposals began to pop up in the 1950s and 1960s for a fixed link, but the support for such a project varied depending on the economy of the day. Typically, the talk of a fixed link to the mainland happened when there was an election. In 1957, an election year, the idea gained traction due to the fact that the government had opened the Canso Causeway and the St. Lawrence Seaway, two mega-projects. 
A rock-filled causeway was proposed by Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent, and then a bridge was proposed at a cost of $148 million, or about $1.5 billion today. To put it in perspective, that cost was about one-third of what the St. Lawrence Seaway cost. The Saskatoon Star Phoenix wrote, quote, Earlier, he hinted strongly that his government may support construction of the proposed multi-million dollar causeway. At a luncheon on the island capital of Charlottetown, the Liberal leader told a gathering of some 100 party organizers his administration would support the causeway if it found the project would eventually put back into the economy more than it took out in costs. End quote. In 1962, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker announced that $105 million would be provided for a causeway to handle cars and trains, but he gave no specific start date. The Windsor Star would write, quote, There are 104,000 persons living on the island. Estimated cost of the causeway to join Potato Land with the mainland would be $105 million. This is better than $1,000 for every man, woman, and child. Of course, the whole idea is utterly fantastic. So is a $105 million causeway to serve 104,000 people, but then the election breezes are blowing. End quote. Lester B. Pearson would be critical of the planned causeway, but he would promise that his government, if elected, would speedily conclude investigations and only build the causeway if it was feasible, but he acknowledged it would take upwards of eight years to build it. Diefenbaker won that election, but lost the next one, and the Liberal government said it would go ahead with the crossing. In 1965, Pearson would state he hoped to have the causeway built by 1970. In 1968, Premier Alex Campbell and 11 of his 12 cabinet members went to Ottawa to ask that the project be resumed. He argued the causeway would pay for itself by eliminating the $6 million in annual deficit due to the ferry service. By the end of the decade, the causeway was called the oldest established unfulfilled promise in Canada. By that point, the cost estimates had ballooned to $300 million. Approach roads and railway lines were actually built, but the project was abandoned in 1969 in an announcement by Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and the ferry service would continue. NDP leader Tommy Douglas would criticize this, stating, quote, On the basis of the information that we know now, I think the people of Prince Edward Island are being shortchanged. End quote. Former PEI Premier Walter Shaw would state, quote, this is a black day for the province. It is one of the greatest betrayals of Prince Edward Island since we entered Confederation. End quote. It was not until the 1980s that the federal government once again approached a fixed link option for Prince Edward Island. In 1986, a Toronto construction firm put forward the proposal to build a bridge at the cost of $500 million. Interest was growing in having a bridge, and Environment Minister Thomas McMillan, who also represented Prince Edward Island, would state, quote, this is not just an old political football we are throwing around. There is an enormous amount of interest in cabinet. End quote. Once again, it was an election year, this time in 1988, that the idea gained traction. The progressive conservative government of Brian Mulroney wanted to conduct a series of mega projects, and three proposals for a tunnel, bridge, or tunnel causeway bridge were called for. Mulroney had been impressed with Japan's Prime Minister, Yashiro Nakasone, who had said during a visit in January 1986 that his country's private sector had assumed control over some services run by the government, including a 15-kilometer bridge across Tokyo Bay. The debate over the fixed link was heated, and a referendum was called for January 18, 1988, to see what the residents of Prince Edward Island wanted. Premier Joseph Giz would state, quote, 
Ultimately, we as politicians will have to make up our minds on this, and we will do that. But first, the provincial government wants to see Islanders' expression of interest by holding public meetings and the vote. End quote. At a debate over the matter at the Holland College Auditorium in Summerside, 500 people crammed inside to voice their opinion. Derek Key would state, quote, The fixed crossing will be a challenge rather than a threat to Islanders. I say we should go for it. End quote. Donald Deakin, a former Liberal MLA, would caution over having a mega-project as they did not always succeed. Opponents to the bridge cited the worry over ecological damage from the construction and the impact the bridge would have on the lifestyle of the island. There was also concern over the federal government pushing for a fixed link, but not shouldering the cost. Those in favor of the fixed link cited that it would improve the ability of the island to export and the tourism industry, thereby improving the economy. In the referendum, 59.4% of the respondents voted in favor of the link. With the vote so close, it was still politically dangerous to back the project, but the Premier decided to go ahead with it. He would state, quote, The philosophical question about whether or not to join our quaint island to the rest of Canada has been resolved, but I am only prepared to put my weight behind this project if the federal government can provide assurances that the link will not harm the environment, end quote. Tom McMillan, the Federal Environment Minister, would state, quote, By any standard, it is a distinct expression of opinion on behalf of the Islanders for a fixed link. End quote. A supporter of the bridge, Crystal Zorkin, would state, quote, The result is very exciting news in parallel to what we are saying in Western Canada. Many islands are facing the reality of tying themselves to the mainland for that economic link. End quote. The government of Prince Edward Island formally approved the project, but demanded compensation and retraining for the 650 ferry workers who would lose their jobs, and compensation for fishers who would lose their fishing grounds during construction. The federal government agreed to these. It would be a few years before the project would begin due to environmental reviews and court challenges initiated by the opponents of the bridge. There was also the worry for Borden, Prince Edward Island, which had grown up around the ferry service link. With that bridge, many questioned if Borden would survive. Mayor George Ramsey of Borden would state, quote, If this goes ahead, there will be little reason to stay here. End quote. Ottawa would sign an agreement with the Strait Crossing Development Incorporated, a private consortium, with SCDI assuming the cost of building, operating, and maintaining the bridge. In return, Ottawa agreed to pay an annual subsidy of $41.9 million, which would last for 35 years, and then ownership of the bridge would then transfer to the federal government. That is slated to happen in 10 years in 2032. The Northumberland Strait. The winning developer will have to construct a bridge that spans 13 kilometres of open water. It's a contract three huge consortiums have spent millions trying to win. This offer from SCI. The three developers tried to appear optimistic as they sat tensely in the same room today, anxiously waiting for public works officials to open the envelopes that would determine their future. It didn't take long. Straight Crossing Incorporated had the lowest bid. It says it needs a federal subsidy of $40.6 million a year to finance the construction of the bridge. Straight Crossing, Inc. is a Calgary-based company, so the first thing the winner did was make a long-distance phone call. The winning bid was about $6 million lower than its closest rival, the Toronto-based Wong and Danske. 
Just how much of an effort was put into getting the bid below that forty-one and a half million dollar figure? A lot of effort. It took a, a lot of people working very, very hard, refining designs, making sure we had a very efficient construction process. The Borden Bridge Company's bid was $64 million, a whopping $24 million more than the winner. But a representative of the Maritime French Consortium says his company took the conservative route and doesn't regret it. Uh, quite frankly, we wouldn't touch this uh, any other way than we did. Uh, uh, we, uh, the risks are just uh, too great. This is what the bridge will look like. It's mainly concrete, and at its highest point, it'll be 150 feet off the water about the same as the Murray-McKay Bridge in Halifax, Dartmouth. Now that the Strait Crossing Incorporated has won this round, its plan must pass through a vigorous financial analysis by the federal government and its financial advisors. And once that's finished, the company is obliged to hold public meetings and present an environmental management plan. But today, the company isn't thinking of those hurdles. Today is a day to celebrate. A good day. Happy day. If all goes according to schedule, construction on the $900 million bridge could begin this time next year. Sue Murtaugh, CBC News, Halifax. In 1992, the Northumberland Strait Crossing Project was officially announced and the new project could begin. An interesting aspect of the construction of the bridge was that it required a changing to the Constitution. When Prince Edward Island joined Confederation, it was required that steamship service be provided to connect the island's railway system to the mainland. Critics of the bridge would state that the scrapping of the ferry service violated Canada's constitution since motorists would be required to pay tolls. Mark Freeman, the lawyer for the anti-bridge side, highlighted the 1873 constitution stating Ottawa would provide, quote, efficient steam service of the conveyance of mails and passengers, end quote. He would say, quote, Efficient steam can only mean a ship. End quote. The Constitution Amendment Proclamation of 1993 would deal with this issue, making it clear that the government could charge a toll for the crossing without violating the terms of the Union. This would allow the government to finance the bridge. As the agreements were being signed, critics were still hoping to prevent the bridge project from going ahead. PEI NDP leader Larry Duchesne would say, quote, we're against the bridge because it failed to pass an acceptable environmental review procedure. The judge confirmed our fears that the bridge was unsafe. End quote. Over the course of about 500 episodes, one thing I've found with Canadian history and history in general is that times change and styles change. What was rare at one point becomes common at another. If you want to take advantage of the style of today, then Manscaped is the company for you. Manscaped has been providing safe products for men to groom themselves for years without the danger of sharp blades causing a very uncomfortable injury. Right now, Manscaped is offering all my listeners 20% off of their order. I recently received my first kit from Manscaped and it comes with everything to groom yourself from top to bottom. Even your nose and ears can be groomed with their patented Weed Whacker Trimmer. With their lotions, powders and trimmers, you can feel your best as you go about your day. Once again, that is 20% off with the offer code EHX at manscaped.com. Choose your products and enter the code at the checkout to save today. You can also click the link in my show notes. With PEI in an election year, there were some who believed that the bridge would become an election issue, but the pro-bridge side didn't see that being an issue. Group spokesman Jim Larkin would state, quote, I don't think the bridge is going to be an election issue at all. There is real need for this project to go ahead. End quote. 
Construction of the Confederation Bridge began in October 1993 and would continue for the next four years. All of the bridge components were constructed on land and staging yards. The components were made of high-grade concrete and reinforced steel with an estimated lifespan over 100 years. All of the large components were built at the Amherst Head Staging Facility. In all, 175 major structural pieces had to be built and then assembled to create the bridge. Each piece weighed in at about 7,500 tons. The bridge would be built in an S design with three curves for safety to prevent people from speeding across the bridge. The structures had to be built to withstand an iceberg hitting them and bouncing off. Once the components were finished, the HLV Sveven, a custom-built ship that constructed the Great Belt Bridge in Denmark, transported them to their location in the water. The Sveven had a heavy-lift catamaran, which during construction was the tallest man-made structure in the Maritimes. Over the course of construction, 5,000 people were involved, including laborers, engineers, surveyors, and managers. As part of the federal promise, 90% of the workers were from Atlantic Canada. Approaching Prince Edward Island from the Northumberland Strait, passengers on the ferry get their first glimpse at what the fuss is all about. Through the haze, they spot the giant piers jutting out of the water. It's just the beginning of an $840 million bridge. They've built a tunnel uh, across England to France, or, you know, they can do that. They surely can do this. I think it'll be nice for us. We'll be able to come back and forth to the island probably a little more often. They've been talking about building some kind of a bridge from Prince Edward Island to the mainland since almost Confederation. And now one of Canada's largest public works projects is a reality. Two years from now, cars and trucks will be able to drive across these waters, replacing ferries like the one behind me. Building this mega structure is a huge task. At this yard in Borden, PEI, more than a thousand workers have been at it for 18 months. This solid concrete girder weighs 8,200 metric tons, and it's just one of many. I think uh, people are pretty excited. It's, it's actually happening. They can see bridge leaving uh, Prince Edward Island shore. They've talked about uh, links to the mainland for about 100 years. The fixed link has revitalized the port community of Borden. It's put hundreds of islanders to work. A huge factory outlet mall will go up here in anticipation of heavier traffic from the bridge. We expect to be driving across May in 97, and we expect in that first year an increase of 125,000 people with an economic benefit of $25 million for PE Islanders. But not everyone has liked the idea of being linked to the mainland. A coalition of environmentalists fear the bridge will damage sensitive fishery habitat and have been critical of the project. It's not just environmental but also financial, and also social, and also long-term economic. Whatever the difference is, all agree, this giant bridge will change the way of life here forever. Cass Rusi, CBC News, Borden, PEI. When it came time to name the bridge, several options were put forward, including calling it the Evagwait Bridge, which was the Micmac name for Prince Edward Island. And while the majority of Prince Edward Island residents liked the name, the federal government overruled this, and on September 27, 1996, it was announced the name would be Confederation Bridge. Diane Marlowe, the Public Works Minister, would state, quote, The bridge joining Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick is a symbol of who we are as a country. I believe all Canadians can be proud of the name chosen, Confederation Bridge. 
a union of people celebrating Canada's past, Canada's present, and a confident future rich in opportunity and prosperity, end quote. Many residents were unhappy with this name as they felt Confederation was overused as a name in the province. Judy Gallant, an island resident, would state, quote, I guess it'll grow on you. The fathers of Confederation met here and everything, but it just gets stuffed down your throat. I think we have a little more imagination, end quote. Barb Cumberland would state, quote, People will just call it the bridge. They'll say, let's go across the bridge, end quote. In 1998, Mary McAleese, the president of Ireland, would call it the span of green gables during her visit to the island. The structure would be completed on November 19, 1996, and work began through the winter to pave the bridge deck, the placing of the bridge concrete barrier guardrails, and navigational lighting. As the last girder was put into place, 50 workers and guests gathered to drink champagne and watch fireworks to mark the occasion. PEI resident Charles Weber would state, quote, PEI will survive it, no problem whatsoever, but it will change, that's inevitable, everything changes, end quote. Every trip across the 14-kilometer Northumberland Strait is precious now. There are only a few left. The more than 600 ferry workers know all too well an era is ending. I guess everybody's had people die in their family, myself included, my wife. And it's a very deep sadness and a very hollow feeling in your stomach. And that's, I imagine, in 99% of the people here, that will, that will be there. As their jobs slowly drift away, the crews find it more difficult to hide their true emotions. Yes, sir, no, sir, you, you know, put, keep, a, keep a smile on your face. And there's some days you, you, that smile is hard to, get, hard to put there. But people here realize there's no stopping progress. We could never compete with the bridge for that type of convenience. I mean, uh, it's going to be quite a change. You get ready to go somewhere or come home and it was always islanders wondered what boats they were going to get or how long they might have to wait hopefully not long but now you can come and go as you as you feel so uh, but what the ramifications will be as a result of this bridge uh, i don't think anybody can foresee now these people's immediate concern is finding another job a tough task in a province with an unemployment rate of 16 percent the workers try to make the most of training paid for by the ferry company. really gave me the push to go ahead and do it. I've been thinking about it for a long time, and now I have to do it, so it was kind of a little bit of incentive to go ahead and do it. One thing is for sure. Few people believe they'll ever find jobs as good as the ones they once had. The $35 million government subsidy that helped run the ferry system gave people here good wages, good benefits, and two free meals a day for some of the crews. In turn, those workers spent their money here, in this community. Now with the bridge, that $35 million government subsidy goes to Ontario investors who helped finance the project. There's a feeling here that a promise to the community of Borden-Carlton has been broken. One of the conditions of the bridge contract, redevelopment for the town, hasn't given the boost they had hoped for. The chair of the community, a ferry worker himself, hopes people can hang on. And I think we have to stay positive, and, uh, and, I, and I'm confident there will be some things happen, but it will take certainly five years to, uh, to catch up on a lot of the job loss that's in this particular area. I'm not going to worry anymore. I did that a long time ago. 
While some here are coping with the change, others harbor a stubborn resistance, even refusing to cross the bridge. I mean, I've been around a while, and uh, I can't stay around forever. And uh, I would just like to, you know, leave uh, with the ships in mind as the way I cross the Northumberland Strait. Because I, I believe, I firmly believe that that's the way it was meant to be. Tom Murphy, CBC News, Borden Carlton, PEI. On May 31st, 1997, the bridge was opened to traffic in a ceremony broadcast across Canada on CBC. The Blue Nose 2 sailed by, as did the Canadian Coast Guard ships. The Snowbirds did a flyover, and the ferries, which had been such an important part to the growth of the island, made their last run. In the hours after the bridge opened to traffic, an estimated 25,000 people walked across the bridge. Jerry Gallant, president of the Tourism Association of PEI, would state, quote, We haven't changed much in what we have to offer. We still have the natural beauty we've always had. It's just that now people will be able to get here faster and spend more time resting and relaxing, end quote. Elmer Phillips would state, quote, I met people from Montreal this morning, and I knew they were French, and I was awful happy to talk to them. We're all together now, one happy family, end quote. In other news now, Prince Edward Island is celebrating a moment it's been waiting for since Canada was born. The Confederation Bridge officially opened, linking the province to the rest of the country. More from the CBC's Cass Rusi. After years of debate and controversy, a new era began with a snip of the scissors. Federal Public Works Minister Deanne Marlowe did the honours, officially opening the new Confederation Bridge. The 13-kilometer-long bridge links Prince Edward Island to New Brunswick, and on hand for the festivities were the premiers from both provinces. It's wonderful. We, we couldn't ask for better neighbors. And uh, we, we, we feel proud uh, and, and touched emotionally in New Brunswick that PEI would care to join. Nothing was spared for this bridge festival. The snowbirds flew over the Confederation Bridge, just as the Blue Nose sailed underneath it. Then, as it has for the last two days, the party continued with music and dance highlighting the history of Canada's smallest province. The bridge itself has been the main attraction at this festival. It took four years to build and it's the first of its kind. The first multi-span bridge over water that's frozen for much of the year. The head of the private consortium that built the bridge seemed to speak for the 6,000 construction workers. What a day. PEI hopes this new bridge will boost the economy, making it easier for tourists and goods to reach the island. But PEI Premier Pat Binns believes none of it will change the way of life for islanders. We're still an island, we'll still keep that charm, and uh, it'll just be a little more easy to do business here. And by the end of the day, as the Confederation Bridge officially opened for the first time to the traveling public, motorists were able to judge for themselves. La, boring. Just, she couldn't see anything at all. Just did the bridge, Bo both ways. Oh, it's great. It's fabulous. There's hardly no wind at all. How would you describe the drive? Smooth. <laughs> Cass Rusi, CBC News, Borden, PEI. For ferry workers, it was bittersweet as they were now out of jobs because of the bridge. Richard Handy, who had worked for the ferry since he was 19, was one such individual. He would stay, quote, 
Look at the people out there. I'm out of a job, and they're having a big celebration over it. This is sort of an insult to the Marine Atlantic employees. End quote. The bridge opening also resulted in one of the worst traffic jams in Prince Edward Island's history. At one point, people were waiting for hours to drive across the bridge, with the lineup of traffic stretching 10 kilometers at one point. One man would say, quote, I think I'll come back in October when everybody's gone. This lineup is incredible. Maybe they ought to put the ferries back on to move things along. End quote. The day would also be marred by tragedy, sadly. A New Brunswick man was killed when a small vessel flipped over in the water near the bridge due to the high winds. The final price tag on the bridge was $840 million, which would be about $1.4 billion today. The bridge would have an immediate impact on Prince Edward Island. In its first year, tourism spending on the island increased 63%, and visits to the island passed $1 million for the first time ever. In 1998, 1 1.6 million vehicles crossed the bridge, an increase from the 1 million vehicles that crossed on ferries in 1996. A year ago today, the map of Canada changed, and PEI was no longer an island unto itself. The Confederation Bridge linking Prince Edward Island to mainland Canada opened. It's been a year of adjustment for the people of PEI, but as Tom Murphy reports, they're now taking the bridge in stride. The first year of life with the Confederation Bridge had Islanders stepping into a new era. Kind of the sense of the new millennium and all of those things, and it gives us a unique part of, of that. It's the convenience of crossing the Northumberland Strait by car rather than boat that Islanders have come to love. A lot easier. It's more expensive, but... And what about the cats? They hate it. <laughs> The bridge hasn't been without its problems. On some winter days, high winds have kept trucks off the structure. Minor compared to uh, what the boats used to be in the winter. Minor. There's little doubt the big winner has been tourism. The number of visitors to PEI increased by more than 50% last year. It's improved the accessibility of Prince Edward Island. People said it connects uh, the mainland to Prince Edward Island, but it also connects the Prince Edward Island to the mainland. But that same accessibility has been troublesome for some island industries. The bridge is giving larger, more competitive off-island processing companies greater access to PEI's raw products. It's already happening in the lobster industry. We've had as much as 40% of, of, of the lobster, for instance, that has left the island. And the same fear exists in agriculture, that jobs like those in hog processing could be lost. It's very important to all of us, I think, uh, and to government as well, that we, that we certainly put our best effort into maintaining the jobs that are there. Making sure that happens has become the biggest challenge facing PEI as the bridge ties it ever tighter to the mainland. Tom Murphy, CBC News, Borden Carlton, PEI. Currently, there's an effort to reduce the toll cost on the bridge, which is $46 for a single two-axle vehicle. In 2016, a committee found that giving island residents a 15% non-refundable tax credit on the toll would cost the government $2.5 million a year in lost revenue. The report did find that tolls could be reduced by 46% and still provide enough funds to operate and maintain the bridge until 2097. And with the contract with SCDI still in place until 2032, it's unlikely there will be any changes before that. 
I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the Confederation Bridge. Next week, we're looking at the birth of the CBC. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Keelan Pregnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobbs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from McLean, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Canadian Encyclopedia, CBC, Edmonton Journal, Windsor Star, Wikipedia, Vancouver Sun, Montreal Star, Montreal Gazette, Fort McMurray Today, North Bay Nugget, and the Owen Sun Times. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.